0: Janine, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Standing by to join me is author Rob Swigert, and we're going to talk about his new historical fiction novel called Mixed Harvest. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Very nice to be here.
0: Rob, you have a really interesting background in archaeology, and um, how did you get involved in that field?
1: Uh, Well... I was very interested initially when I was young in classical archaeology, particularly in Greece. I was kind of a Hellenophile and uh, went to Greece right out of college and taught English and uh, learned some Greek and went to a lot of archaeological sites. Uh, But uh, I ended up going into um, comparative literature, which included Greek and French. Interesting. Interesting. And then in the 90s, my father had taken a trip to the Yucatan, and I suddenly got very interested in the Maya. And this is where my archaeology really started to take off, because I spent most of the 90s and the early 2000s going on trips to uh, archaeological sites in Central America. Amazing. And did a novel about the Maya called Shibalba Gate, Uh novel of the classic Maya which was actually published as a as an archaeology textbook.
0: Fantastic.
1: And out of that I ended up going to a mm-hmm. place in Turkey called Chatalhoyuk which was a Neolithic site. I knew nothing about the Neolithic at the time but I uh, got fascinated by it ended up being novelist in residence at the site uh, did a book called Stone Mirror that came out in 2007. And that's where I've seemed to have plunged fully into archaeology.
0: Were you, excuse me, were you a fantastic student when you were younger and in college? Because you have this love of learning.
1: It depends on what you mean by fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastically mediocre, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but I think it was graduate school that really taught me the, uh, the love of learning.
0: Where did you go to graduate school?
1: I went to SUNY Buffalo, the State University of New York.
0: I went to Syracuse. Oh,
1: well, (laughs) we're neighbors.
0: (laughs) And that weather.
1: Uh, And the weather, yes. Well, one thing about Buffalo was that it was a place where there was very little to do except things around the university. So I spent a lot of time studying and talking to people and... um, I think it it just changed my whole attitude towards life. I had a purpose that yes. I didn't know was there, and I became a poet there. So I started writing as a poet, and then gradually turned into a novelist, and then into an archaeological novelist. So yeah, I've done a lot of stuff.
0: <laughs> Archaeology seems so fascinating.
1: Well, I had come, I had I had moved from. Uh, from uh being a futurist and working as a futurist writing scenarios and stories about the future uh with a small uh nonprofit think tank uh to in getting interested in the deep past both discussions were speculative uh talking about the past you have a bit more data than you do about the future because you can only think about the future in terms of what we know now
0: right
1: but um uh, the, the mental operation is quite similar. I also write science fiction from time to time. So,
0: uh, I want to share with the listeners, the viewers, uh, we're speaking with Rob Swigert. He's a former technology journalist, technical writer, computer game designer, poet, futurist, archaeology writer, pilot, diver, Akito Black Belt, amazing. Your parent and Rumpus room manager. <laughs> what is that last one
1: uh, small children
0: small children okay
1: i had small children and now i have small grandchildren
0: small grandchildren yeah why do you think learning about human history is really important today
1: oh uh, oh sorry you're fine ear fell out uh <laughs> the the last project i did uh as a futurist was about climate change, which I had been um, interested in since the early nineties when it became apparent that something was happening. Um, Moving into archeology, span I got to think about climate change as it began, how it began, what was happening as a result of human activity on the planet. And uh, I was just this morning reading an article in Eon Magazine, uh, online magazine, uh, about the about archaeology and about the what I call the sedentary divide, which is the period during which people came up with and adopted agriculture and farming spread all over the world. And it happened fairly quickly. Uh, Once the Holocene began, that's the period, the geological period in which we are, Mm -hmm. uh, we have nice weather, we did, and now we're talking about a newer geological era called the Anthropocene, that is the human cause changes, which means that um, the dominant force in affecting the state of the world is human activity now not volcanism or tectonic shifts or uh, ice ages, but our behavior. So thinking about the past and getting into archeology span and looking at the remains, the palimpsest of human activity on the earth, we have a story of how we got here. And my contention is that the more we know about the past, the more we know about how we came into this uh, kind of inheritance of this globe that uh, we see now as a right. as something separate from us. Nature is now mm-hmm. with a capital N mm-hmm. and is entirely separate from us. Unless you go up to a national park where nature exists, still with roads and hotels and uh, uh, comfort stations, um, the the world is very different from what it was before. And I got very interested in how that transition happened and how we ended up here. Because I think if we know more about the past, we actually can plan better for how we deal with this transition that we're going through now, which is a transition, we are changing. yes, And I think society is gonna change very quickly in the next few decades.
0: Definitely. You know, as I'm listening you talk about this, I'm thinking about global warming and how yeah. some people who say there's no such thing.
1: I'm afraid that that uh, goat has left the harbor. I, I should have said boat, but I said goat. <laughs> that horse has left the train station. Uh, it, it's here. There's, right. there's, you can't deny it. And believe me, deny it. living in California, it's impossible to deny it.
0: Right. Yes. It's, um, it affects everything. I mean, it's, it's something you really need to pay attention to.
1: Absolutely. We, it's, it's demanding that we pay attention to it. Yes. And I'm not saying that, that, because I think it has agency, that it's a living thing. Right. It's the condition. It's our relationship, our embedded relationship in the earth, in the processes of the earth, which are sometimes called Gaia, uh, based on the goddess of the earth from Greek mythology. But she's not a goddess. She is a very complex system of systems of systems uh, of which we are one of the systems or perhaps many of the systems and we need to change fundamentally our relationship with that complex of systems
0: yeah.
1: if we're to survive.
0: I want to share something with you, by the way, do we, do you have to wrap up at 1115? No,
1: I'm not
0: 1115, but you don't. Okay.
1: No, I have no okay. time left.
0: So um during the quarantine back in March, I was, um, about to cook a butternut squash. I promise this will make sense. And I thought, okay, what am I gonna do with all these seeds? You know, I'm gonna try to grow butternut squash. And I don't have a huge green green thumb, but I had other things growing, mint and other things. And uh, the the garden is really a reflection of how I'm feeling in life. So when I was growing weeds, my dad was dying of cancer, right? Or I was going through all this stuff. I was ignoring that world part of my life. So I put the I take the seeds I put them in dirt put them in my windowsill and all of a sudden within days I have sprouts and then I have plants and I think I better put them outside. Well, I I probably grew about twelve butternut squash and some are the size of a football some are small, but it's taught me that you know I feel like I needed to uh, grow in a certain way during the quarantine and. Mm -hmm. simplify my life a little bit. Like, why am I going out and buying certain things when I can just go out and make them? Plus it gets me out in nature. And I'm learning more about myself, about nature, about living on the land. I mean, it's, and then my neighbor brought over pomegranates and we did a swap. And I thought that's a beautiful thing to pay attention to nature.
1: Yeah. And some plants and some animals seem eager to uh, join us, yeah. Uh, there were there were domesticated animals like sheep and goats that just fell into our ken. You know, they they seem to volunteer to join us, and and there are plants that do that too. And squash is one of them, which was domesticated in the uh, Central American area.
0: Of course, you know that. <laughs> I
1: don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Um, but one of the things we have to remember is that by accepting the uh, volunteers, we have changed our physiology. Our diet has changed dramatically since the beginning of agriculture. And uh, the, our, our evolution, which is obviously moving in small and, and large steps, kind of at random, um, has been unable to keep up, so we have a lot of uh, high starch diseases like uh, diabetes and cancer and heart disease that we didn't have in the Paleolithic before agriculture
0: and I also so, want to add to that inflammatory is, diseases inflammatory yeah. diseases
1: yes, and diseases that have jumped from animals, and we we're going through one right now so, so living so, in me, close so coronavirus
0: it, coronavirus. Came from did it come from bats. a bat?
1: Bats. Probably jumped to pigs, domesticated pigs. Okay. On a farm somewhere. Somebody they eat bats in China, and this is from in Wuhan. There, there was a, a, a wild animal market. I remember that. i heard that. Yeah, bushmeat market. Okay. And that and that allows the, the virus to jump. And SARS has done the same. I mean, these are, these are uh, zoonotic diseases, diseases that jump from animals to humans. Okay. And usually now through an intermedi- intermediary of a domesticated animal. So um, we didn't know this when we began adopting agriculture. Obviously, right. no way we could. We can't blame them but we can see the unintended consequences of adopting agriculture. And I think maybe we can think in different ways about how to live in a better kind of um, harmony with the planet. I'm yes. not trying to be hippie about it.
0: No, uh, I just I really think
1: it, it, it requires a major reassessment. And uh, in my wildest days, I say a paradigm shift in, um, in social science. Right, so that we we have a different way of uh, of accepting what's happening with us, and so, I'm not saying I'm not saying to us with us.
0: Right. So what you're saying is, in Wuhan, somebody ate a bat, or somebody probably,
1: be- probably they kept the bat and the, the the it it uh, transferred by the air. air. I don't know. I'm right. Not an epidemiologist. No, My daughter's course. an epidemiologist. I'm not. I-
0: I had heard about the bat, and then other, I heard other people say, oh, it wasn't anything to do with the bat, but I thought it was.
1: Well, they have thrown out pangolins, too, but I think now it's accepted that it, it's from bats.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, because other coronaviruses have transferred from bats. Uh, they harbor a lot, and they're immune, so they don't care.
0: Unbelievable. But
1: but, uh, it discovered, the the virus discovered a weakness in the American immune, American, the human immune system, Mm -hmm. and uh, has exploited it. And uh, it's allowed the virus to be very successful in an evolutionary sense.
0: Yeah. It's the strangest thing to me how some people, it's fatal. And other people, it's, they don't have the symptoms, but they're, they, yeah. They have very few symptoms, so
1: they don't know if they have it or, you know. Well, I think that's, uh, there's a, <clears throat> a great variety in the human genome mm-hmm. and uh, the human immune system. And it's all not just the genetics, but the epigenetics, the uh, life experience, the, the uh, pathogen challenges that have confronted uh, people in their lives.
0: Right,
1: that all is different for everybody. So, yeah, when you're a little bit older like me, you're a little bit more uh, challenged by it. So I'm avoiding it. Good. It does mean, does mean staying home and reading and looking at my garden. So yes, I don't grow food, but I have nice plants.
0: That's good. Anything else you'd like us to know about your book?
1: Um, well, it, of- it's it's a collection of stories. So it's an attempt to make uh, a story that we can resonate with about the deep past. It starts about 60,000 years ago when a modern human encounters a Neanderthal. Actually, there's a story 300,000 years ago as a kind of preface because uh, it's looking at burial practices, which is a human thing, Mm -hmm. mostly. I mean, I guess elephants have funeral practices. But um humans, you know, it, it's not just a sanitation thing, although sure. primarily that's what it is. Uh but it is it, it is because we have these memories and self-consciousness we're aware. Yes. Uh we mourn. Mm-hmm. And uh it's not uniquely human, but it's uh important. And uh I wanted the reader to not just read facts about the past, but to engage with it in an emotional way. So the stories go from then through the late stone age, the the, uh, middle stone age, when farming really took hold and we started to live in square houses to the uh, development of cities in Southern Mesopotamia and the invention of writing. After that, we have history and we can read about that but i wanted to i wanted to speculate uh intelligently about th- that past
0: i wish you had so, been my teacher growing up because i had a hard time studying history i thought it was very boring they would just throw us a textbook oh i did and and you did too oh yes really because you're oh, yeah. so you explain it so easily and I, i'm just so fascinated you know
1: well <laughs> I changed my mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's like anything. The way someone teaches and conveys information can have a huge impact. It can either make you cross your eyes and you're bored, or it can make you interested.
1: Hopefully, reading this, you won't be bored.
0: It doesn't sound uh, like it.
1: The book initially was over twice as big. Most of it was nonfiction. And the problem with uh, with that is that the field of archaeology, particularly, but all the sciences, are changing so fast that by the time the book would come out, it would be obsolete.
0: But the stories
1: are not obsolete. Good. There's nothing I would change about the stories. Learning what I've learned since I finished the first draft of this book, it's been ten years. Amazing. Oh. Uh, I I think that the stories are a way of enduring. You won't hear archaeologists agree with that very often because they're data-driven and the data changes. But I think the human experience is universal. So that's my hope anyway.
0: I wanted to just add something. You know, the name of my show is called Get the Funk Out.
1: Yes, a clever pun.
0: (laughs) But I'm so fascinated with, especially you in particular, you have a love of learning. You've had a a lot of experience in your field. You're so fascinated with life. And when you found your passion in life, did that help you when you faced rocky roads in life because you had this thing that you were just passionate about? Because that's a gift to find something you love.
1: Uh, It is a gift. And it's what I told both my daughters, find something you love and they both have. So it's good. I think it does help. Well, it's, it's essential. Yes. And I think everybody has it. It's just that we are um, stifled often by our society and our social context, family history, a lot of constraints on what happens. Yeah. I I departed very much from what my parents would have wanted for me, uh, but I think that they would have cheered, nonetheless.
0: But it's good you departed because so, so many times we live the life our parents want us to leave and it's not necessarily good for us.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I took parts of what they what they were because <laughs> I am a we are all uh, an amalgam of our. Yes. Yes. Uh, I can recognize uh, things in myself that are my parents, uh, but I've put them together in my own way.
0: That's good. That's wonderful.
1: And, and I think my, my family's done the same.
0: That's a good way to honor somebody, is that you take little bits and pieces, but you uh, are true to yourself.
1: Yeah. For instance, my father w- was a history major in college. Oh. And read a lot of history. And I thought history was really boring. And I'm sure that was partly because of the way it was taught.
0: Yes, sure.
1: Uh, but because it's not boring at all, it's uh, endlessly fascinating. And I write other kinds of books, and they're based a lot in history. So, okay.
0: Rob, where can uh, people find out more about you?
1: Uh, well, I have a website, <laughs> which is robswigert.com.
0: Okay. S-W-A-G-A-R-T.
1: I'm sorry, right? S-W-I-G-A-R-T. R-O-B. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think the publisher website, well, I can show, well, I, you've seen the book, I guess. Yes, I have. Uh, uh, Bergon has some information and also I have a few blog posts on their website, uh, but my website has a link to it. So. Okay. I think pretty much everything is there.
0: Is there an audiobook?
1: Uh, not of this that I know of. Okay. Uh, I do have an audiobook, but it's short stories about computers. So okay.
0: Wonderful. Well, anything else you'd like to leave us with before we wrap up?
1: Um, get engaged with your relationship with this planet because, as they say, there is no planet B. I did have a friend who used to say, we got to get off the planet. And I say, no, we don't want to inflict this species on the rest of the universe until we can figure out how to live with this one. So,
0: yes, good uh, point.
1: Get engaged with it.
0: Get engaged with your
1: planet. I like that. Fantastic.
0: Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Likewise. Thank you very much.
0: This was wonderful.